You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, everybody, and welcome to the Third Cup of Coffee. If you do not have your Third Cup of Coffee at hand, uh, you may want to go grab it. It'll help because I go very, very fast today. Um, I am on my third cup of coffee. You probably picked that up right away. My name is Randy Bolander. I'm the pastor of The Bridge in Kansas City. And we just finished our second concurrent weekend in live services. And I am so excited. I'm almost unfit to live with. Uh, Did not preach the first one. Had Lou Engel with us and actually had no podcast last week. I apologize for that. But this week we are back and I was able to teach this weekend And it was so great to see faces and watch people engage in worship, see new faces and old faces and middle-aged faces. And it was all faces were good. Um, So fun to teach people and watch the aha moments as things the Lord had laid on my heart began to connect with their hearts. Uh, This podcast is going to be the audio from that service as I start to talk about what it means to be transformed by the Lord and why some people seem not to be, even though they have served or at least professed Jesus for a long time. Stay with us. We are building the bridge to be what the kingdom will need in the years to come, to catch the fruit. Now, we talk about building. How many of you play with your kids' Legos if you have small kids? Let's be honest. Dad, do you play with your kids? Dads and moms? Okay. Or you, maybe your kids are grown, you had Legos. Maybe a more uh, appropriate question. How many of you in the dead of night have stepped on a Lego? Oh, it's like, it's like the worst thing in the world. You're sneaking through and like, yeah, hurts like crazy. Working with Legos, you know, you start to build things. You don't always end up with what you started to build, right? You're starting to build a bridge. But as you're building a bridge, you end up with pieces of other things that you stick on there, and and your kid looks at it and goes, nice castle. You're thinking, well, it's not not a castle, it's it's a bridge. Well, it looks like a castle, and you look at it, and you have to admit it actually does look like a castle, so you go with that, and you build a castle when you started to build a bridge. Too often, in the building of organizations, in the building of congregations, in the building of what we are in our family, we start out to build one thing, but we don't always have all the right pieces, and we're not patient, so we build with what we have, and at the end, what we've built does not look like what we thought we were going to build. We end up building something a little bit different. As much as we're sold out to the vision of the bridge that the God wants us to build, sometimes, if we're not careful, outside expectations affect the end result. So just to accentuate the obvious, if you've just wandered in, or maybe this is your first or second week or third week, and to be truthful, we've been on Zoom for a year. If this is your first week here, we're only a week ahead of you. Don't feel bad. We're building a bridge. And a bridge will help get you and your friends and family members and friends that you don't know across the chasm of life to a place they could not get if the bridge didn't exist. And right now we're starting to just kind of put the Legos together and it's exciting, but it's a little sobering. Sometimes you go, I need this piece to build a bridge. I don't have that, oh, but I've got this piece. But if I put that piece on there, it's not a bridge anymore. It's a castle. And we weren't called to build a castle. We weren't called to build a fort. We weren't called to build a wall. We weren't called to build something that was defensive. We're called to build a bridge. So the next couple of weeks, I want to talk 
about things that are very seminal to what it means to building the bridge and what this church will be. These are things that will make us who we are and how we are, okay? And I mentioned these back in February, kind of in passing, and I've had a number of people come back to me, hey, can you talk about that a little more? Which means either I didn't explain it very well or made a great impact. It's hard to tell sometimes what the effect is. But whatever the case, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to go back to that list of things and talk, and talk a little bit about the key parts of the bridge. And I'll just run through the four real quick, and uh, we'll go back to the top of the list to talk about it. One is the belief in the power of the gospel. And when we say that, we mean to actually change people to actually having a transformative effect on their lives. That when a life encounters Jesus, that that life should be different over time. And some of it happens instantly, and a lot of it happens over time. But if you've been serving Jesus 20 years, and you're not different than you were, something's broke. Okay, that's not the gospel. The gospel transforms lives. Number two is a commitment to building a vibrant community. Everybody's looking for community as if they're going to find it as an oasis in the desert. We don't find community, we build community. We build it intentionally. We pick up these things called phones and we call other people and we say, hey, can we meet? Let's have coffee. Let's spend some time on the phone. Let's invest in one another. It's a commitment to building vibrant community. You maybe have been here one week or two, you're looking around, it doesn't seem too vibrant. We're building it. Okay, we're we're building it. And your phone might ring and and then answer that phone and have coffee with that person and have someone to your home. We're committed to building it. We're not going to pretend where we are, but we're not, but we're building it. Third thing is an eye towards the future, both the future of this world and the age to come. There was a song in the 80s, which, by the way, was the golden decade of music. If you're a If you feel differently about that, that's probably the one thing we might fight over, but that's the one thing I'm real committed to. Golden golden era of music. And there was a song in the 80s and the lyric was, I'm doing all right, I'm getting good grades, the future's so bright. Anybody remember? I gotta wear shades. Okay, see, I told you. I believe the future is so bright for the church, both in this life and the life to come. Does that mean it's all going to be easy? No, it's actually going to be very hard, but what the Lord is making us into is perfect for that season. And because we believe that the future is bright, we look forward to what God has for us with great excitement, even if there's struggle in it. Because to be the church that he's called us to be is going to be very fulfilling in days to come, even as trials come and in the age to come. So we believe in an eye turned towards the future. We talk about the the days to come a lot. The fourth thing is the practice of sending, believing that if the gospel transforms people, then we want to export that all around the world. So we were so excited when some of our dear family members said, we want to go to Alaska because we believe the Alaskan people are worth it. And it's exporting them. We were excited when Daniel and Carla said, we want to go to Iraq for a couple, uh, for a week or so. It's just a part of who we are is this idea of sending. So the commitment to the gospel, the commitment to community, the commitment to a bright future, the commitment to sending, it's kind of who we are and who we're becoming. This morning, back to the top of the list, we're going to talk a little bit about the gospel and its power to transform you. If you're a note taker, let me give you a flyby. This is the part uh, that we say where I tell you what I'm going to tell you, okay? I'm just going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to go back and I'll tell you what I told you I was going to tell you. You can go, okay, yeah, you told us. I'm going to tell you that Jesus is light, and we can walk in the light, or we can walk in the darkness. And that is largely up to our decision. 
that we respond to the light or Jesus two ways, in faith and in action. That's what it means to walk in the light. We do it in faith, in, in confession of our faith and in action. Also, that if we control our thoughts, I'm sorry, let me back up. We can't control our actions unless we control our thoughts. You just can't. Some of you have been struggling with the same besetting sin for a long time, but you've never thought about going upstream and capturing your thought life to control your actions. You can't control your actions unless you control your thoughts. Finally, the last thing that I'm going to tell you, I'm not done, I'm going to go back and tell you all this. Don't get your hopes up. The last thing I'm going to tell you is if we control our thoughts, the Lord will more quickly transform our lives. That person that you were thinking of who has been saved for 20 years but hasn't changed much, it's because they have not learned to control their thought life and their actions have followed their thoughts for 20 years. So we know as human beings, okay, discrimination is wrong. We don't discriminate. We don't discriminate in the sense that we don't treat people differently. But just a question for you, does God discriminate? Does God discriminate? I mean, we're not supposed to, but if anybody would get a one-off, it would be God. He's, he's God. Scripturally, we find a clue about God discriminating back in Genesis. Last week, Lou talked about Genesis and the idea of let there be light. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, picking up where he left off, verses 3 and 4. And we find that, in a way, God discriminates. Genesis 1, 3 and 4. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. So even very early in the time of creation, God starts to discriminate. He creates light, and light in the presence of where there had never been light before revealed lots of things. It revealed what was going on in the chaos. For the first time, there were shadows. There was, there was a contrast between the darkness and the light, and God said, the light is good. And by inference, the darkness was not. There was sudden illumination in contrast. That darkness was there that had gone unnoticed. You know, the thing about being in the dark, if you don't have light, you don't really know you're in the dark. You're just thinking that's how it is. But from that point, God deemed light good. And in fact, light became a metaphor for his presence and his voice and even his son. And darkness came to represent ignorance at best. You ever tell somebody you're in the dark? It's because they just don't know. Or outright evil in the kingdom of darkness. Light represents good. Darkness represents evil. And God discriminates between those two things. He doesn't call them the same. Paul gives this idea a bit of a shout out when he's writing to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. When he connects the dots between the symbolism of the creation of light and God entering our hearts and illuminating all that is within us. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, Let the light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Not only did he call the light good, he used light as a picture of what comes into our hearts when we say yes to Jesus, and he calls it the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. What an incredible phrase. Light changes things. You see things you didn't see before. One of the things through the last year in homeschooling our kids, 
that has come to me is it's kind of like stirred up all my own memories of grade school. You know, I had stuffed them down there pretty far. All of a sudden, they're back. And I remember in the third grade, suddenly getting long division. Like, I, th- I, I don't know if I was the last kid in the class. If you know me, it's likely. But uh, I, I re- felt like I was the last kid in the class. Mrs. Hoff's class there in third grade, Belleville Public School, Belleville, North Dakota. And I was sitting there, and I couldn't get it and couldn't get it. And all of a sudden, she wrote the exact same thing she'd written on the board for the past four days as all of my buddies had gotten it. And all of a sudden, aha, I got it. It was like a light turned on. Aha. You ever had an aha moment? where you suddenly realize something, and maybe you were the last one in the room, but now you know it just like all of the others know it. You were in the dark a minute ago, but now you're in the light. You have this concept you didn't have before. When light breaks in to the universe, to a room, to the human heart, there is this aha moment. And that aha is recognizing who the light is and where it comes from. And it illuminates all around us. And at the same time, it reveals what's going on. John 8, verse 12 says, And Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now go back to does God discriminate? Think about that just for a little bit. It's so interesting that Jesus actually discriminates here when he's thinking about this. A lot of people acknowledge that he is the light. A lot of people say he is the son of God, but not everybody walks in the light. Not everybody follows, including people who have that aha moment and realized who he was. Matthew 7, 21 Jesus is speaking and he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So to do the will of the Father is to follow Jesus, who said he comes to do the will of him who sent him. To do the will of Jesus is to walk in the light. To walk in the light is to choose to follow him, not just to cry, Lord, Lord. It's important for our own lives and just as important for our legacy and our children that we don't just say, Lord, Lord, but we actually follow what Jesus said. Some of you, I'm at this age now, you know, 53. When I turned 50, I realized I have just entered the second lap of what is only a two lap race. Okay, it's not like you're going to get three 50 year laps, like you're on the second lap. And I started thinking very seriously about how I was pouring into my children. Because the things that they're going to remember what they saw me doing is what they're going to do. My watch literally just said, I'm not sure I understand. (laughs) What a smart aleck watch. No, but I began to think about my kids and what are they going to walk in? They're going to walk in what they saw me doing, not just what they saw me say. What's the line from from Hamilton that a a legacy is planting seeds in a garden that you will never see? And our legacy of what we do will bear fruit far beyond us. But just saying, Lord, Lord, will not bear that fruit. To believe in the light of the gospel is to believe that Jesus changes everything. And if he changes everything, we want to come into alignment with that light and what he is doing because the light was called good. And we want that to be what our lives are about. 
One part about having a large family is understanding that the house is never quiet. This is never quiet. There are times we get everybody to bed and I will sit in the dark till 11, 12, some, I'm, admittedly, sometimes one. Why? Because it's quiet. During the day, there is not a house large enough where you could find a quiet spot. There's just always this low roar. And it's the sound of children. It's beautiful, but it's, it just is what it is. Sometimes I'll be downstairs and I will hear something upstairs that'll sound a little bit like... You go to the stairs, what's going on? Nothing? No, that wasn't nothing. Like that was something. You, you'll, you'll hear it again. And so you finally go up and you open up the door to a room and there's like kids wrestling and a lamp's tipped over and a dresser's laying on its side and the light's off. And you, you go, what, what, what are you, what's happening here? And the answer is never related to the lamp or the wrestling or the, the dresser tipped over. It's always, oh, somebody shut the light off. As if with the light being off, all those other things are okay. You cannot cry, Lord, Lord, and play with the light switch in your life. You can't say, Jesus, we love you on Sunday morning, and then flip the light off and on and think that when the light's off during the week that you can do as you wish. Just because you flip the light off doesn't mean Jesus doesn't see what's going on. When he opens the door and looks in, he no, there's more than going on here, and he realizes that. The book of 2 Peter opens to find Peter writing to his fellow believers. He says, these are those who abstain, uh, have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. His way of saying, you're, you're believers in your long term. We're not talking to baby Christians here. I'm not talking to people who just got on the Jesus train. The listeners here have been around the block. And he talks to them about the power of God and goes to great lengths to say, I am not telling you new things. I'm reminding you, okay? You've already said, Lord, Lord. I'm telling you about things that you know. But he said, I'm going to tell you these things until my dying day. The phrase that he uses is until I put off my body, okay? I'm going to talk to you about these things until this frame is no more. And in reminding them of righteousness and life, near the end of the chapter, he says, in essence, that the light of the call to walk with Jesus and to walk closely and follow him is not just to say, Lord, Lord. He's saying, I didn't make this stuff up, guys. Then he reminds them, we saw Jesus being baptized. So pay attention to the light that you have. First, Second Peter 2, 1 through 16 and 19. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we were known to you, the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He's talking about Jesus' baptism. He goes, we saw this. We heard this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our heart. He's saying, guys, pay attention to the light to which you have been exposed to. We heard who God declared him to be. You would do well to hear and to remind yourself of that prophetic word, of that moment of aha in your heart when the light went on and you said, yes, Lord. You would do well to pay attention to that moment because the gospel hinges 
on our faith, our profession, but it also hinges on the demonstration of our faith in our obedience. The gospel's got the power to transform lives and free people from addictions and heal families. And if we believe that, Jesus is the light of the world, and then we reorder our lives to walk in that light, we get the transformation that he's promised. In abandoning that obedience part of that arrangement, many have settled for a faith that is almost entirely in their head and never affects their heart. They believe the right things, but they don't necessarily do the right things. And at the end of their life, they say, I called you Lord, Lord. And he says, yeah, I remember that part. But you never seemed to do what I said. Your theology was very good. I wish we had gotten to know each other. And I wish you had walked in the light during the course of your life. Because you had it in your head, but I don't know that you ever really had it in your heart. Let me give you two verses that will guide how we think about the gospel and how we'll respond to it. Go to Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. Paul writes here, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's break that down a little bit. He says, of course, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Even within a cultural Christian context like we live in, where there is some concept of who God is and who Jesus is, although that's decreasing in our culture, it's still there. Even in that, there is a stigma to a full proclamation of the gospel. We want Easter lilies without crucifixion. We want the glory without the gory that comes with it. We want life in God without walking with God on a day-to-day -day basis. We even want church without challenge, but that's not the gospel. And when you lean into those things, people are going, oh, I don't know about that. The message of Jesus is confrontational, and it's demanding and rewarding all at the same time. Paul took that head on. He said, I'm not ashamed of this. That's who I'm about. He said, it is the power of God. Now he's speaking here to the Romans. Rome was the center of power of the known world. Think of the financial power of New York City, the political power of Washington, D.C., the cultural influence of Los Angeles, all rolled into one municipality. And he said, no, no, let me tell you about the power of God. You think you know power, but the power of God is the gospel. He said, I'm not ashamed of that. And it goes to the Jew and to the Gentile. He's not necessarily making a theological point there. He makes it other places. But he's kind of describing history there. He said, initially, it went to the, those who were Jews. Now Gentiles are beginning to understand who Jesus is. And God discriminates. He offers the best of himself to his people and then to the others around the world. And Paul's not ashamed of that. And he says it goes from faith for faith. Other version says, from faith to faith. In other words, at any point along the journey, your walk in the light with him as you walk out the gospel is still a walk of faith. Jesus didn't ask for your understanding. He asked for your faith and your obedience. And he will be asking for your faith and obedience if you're alive 50 years from now. From faith to faith. One day you'll fully understand everything he's asking you to do. In the meantime, he's saying, you'll only understand part. Will you walk with me? Sometimes we look at people who have followed Jesus for decades and we think, 
They must have that down. Like that must be easy for them. You know what? In their 80s, they are still choosing Jesus. In their 90s, they are still choosing Jesus. If they're thriving in their walk, it's because they've chosen to say yes to him and obey him for decades. But the gospel is not just belief. It is a physical reality in their life as they walk it out. So this gospel that Paul is not ashamed of is available to everybody. It's the power of God unto salvation. If that is all true, and I believe it is, how do we get those people who've been in the church for 20 years and know better than they were before? Like, if all this is true... Why is, you know, Uncle Johnny, if you're an Uncle Johnny, that was just a for instance, I'm not. But why, why is there that one guy that you know who hasn't missed a church meeting but still struggles with the same things? How does that happen? Why do we so, so many people who cry, Lord, Lord, but don't do what he says, and in not doing what he says, there is no transformation of their life? Why do we, by we I mean me, find ourselves sometimes six months later, six years later, into our pursuit of Jesus, and we're no further than we were before. If we love Jesus, shouldn't we be getting better? You ever look at someone and think, if you love Jesus, why are you not getting any better? Don't say that out loud. Okay, just keep that. That's your inside voice. Because they may be looking at you saying the same thing. I think it's because we give Jesus our head, but we reserve our heart. We acknowledge who he is. We say, Lord, Lord, but we don't follow him. And we actually hinder the power of the gospel to change our lives. Yes, salvation is by faith. But genuine faith is different than just acknowledgement. Genuine faith is acknowledgement, but it is also walking in the light and following him. Plenty of people believe Jesus to be who he is, but don't walk in the light. And that understanding of a fact of who Jesus is does not make a difference for you any more than a belief and an understanding of gravity saves your life if the plane crashes. How did this happen? I totally understood gravity. Romans 12, verse 1. Jesus actually addresses this, and Paul takes it up here in Romans He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So he's talking to believers here, including, no doubt, some who have said, Lord, Lord, and didn't get any better. Okay, like they they just haven't encountered that transformative touch from the Lord. And he's saying, guys, I'm appealing to you. I'm begging to you. Get your ducks in a row here. You are brothers in the faith, but you are strangers in the function And you are not growing. You cry, Lord, Lord, but you offer a life that is not a sacrifice. And it's not holy and it's not acceptable. And I am begging you to change that. And then, because he's a good pastor, he doesn't just leave them with what is wrong. He addresses it in their life so that they can experience the fullness of the power of God. In the next verse, he goes on. Do not be conformed to the world but be transformed, okay? So he's talking about that transformative experience of knowing Jesus, and he draws this dichotomy. Don't be conformed, be transformed. Pick one, you can't have both. He's like, these are opposites here. And I discriminate. So you can be conformed if you want, but if you be conformed, you'll never be transformed. And yet everything in culture tries to get us to conform. Conform. 
and we kind of like it because we don't like sticking out. We don't like being different. You know that feeling of junior high when you walked into a room, you're petrified you're going to be different from everybody else? You thought that was going to go away. You're like, I'm 60. I still think about these things because we're pressed to conform. He said, you can conform, but if you conform, you're just not transformed. If you want transformation, you can't conform. And then he goes on to talk about it. Transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. And by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. By walking in the light, which starts primarily in your thought life. Your actions are children of your thoughts. You hardly ever do anything that at some point you didn't think about doing. I mean, you do a few things. There are some things just autopilot. You don't wake up in the morning and say, should I make coffee? That's a given, okay? That's autopilot. You don't know. But for the most parts of your life, right? When you did something, you go, oh, the worst part is I thought about it and I did it anyway. If you can't catch your actions between your ears, you're never going to catch them in your hands. There's this inner dialogue that goes on, okay? And you talk to yourself constantly about what you're going to do what you're going to allow in your presence, what you're going to internally embrace, what you're going to speak against, what you're going to put your energy and your finances towards. Remember, energy, finances are just energy in paper form. What you're going to do, that, mind, that dialogue that goes on in your mind constantly controls what you do. And even if you said, Lord, Lord, but it don't invite the Lord into transforming your thought life, you will never have the fortitude to obey him and walk in the light. The internal voice that you live with is too loud. It's too influential. And it's too constant. When you come to Jesus, that voice doesn't shut off. He saves your soul, but your physiology is pretty much the same. So you still have that voice. And Paul says, you have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind those of you that are trying to transform yourselves by addressing your behavior without addressing your mind are starting at the wrong end of the equation. Address your mind. You're thinking, couldn't he just do this? <laughs> like, couldn't he just press a button and just transform me? He's like, yeah, but he's like that dad who says, I'll buy the parts and we'll fix the car together. Why? Because we'll get to know each other. We'll get closer that way if we work together. So you partner with him in that transforming of your mind. So how do you tap into the power of the gospel to change your behavior? You start with the renewing of your mind because you cannot demonstrate what you do not think about. In fact, we only demonstrate what we think about. If you think in negative patterns, you demonstrate negative behavior. If you think in faith-filled patterns, you demonstrate faith-filled behavior. If your mind is focused on the light, you walk on the light. If your mind is allowed to go dark places, you walk in those dark places. You think, but how do we get past this? We've got to change the way we press back against the influences and patterns that attack us because if it's true that no weapon formed against us can prosper, why are we getting our head bashed in? I mean, if that's true, the Bible says no weapon can form against you. How come we feel like we're getting beat up? because we fight battles with our behavior when we're really attacked in areas of our thinking. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Where are those strongholds? And where are those arguments and lofty opinions? They're in our own minds. Those are the ones we're doing battle with. We read that and we think we're going to go to court and argue somebody into the kingdom. No, you are going to court in your brain. Destroying those opinions that stand against what the Word of God says. In years of ministry, this is what I've learned. You might not believe this. Everyone is opinionated. I mean, everyone has an opinion on everything. And some of those opinions are really valuable. Some of them are just opinions, okay? And he said, in order to be transformed, you've got to go to war with some of your own opinions. You've got to go to war with some of the own lofty arguments in your head. What arguments and lofty opinions are the hardest to destroy? The ones that we have come up with. And some of us have not seen transformation because we've not conquered sin, and we've not conquered sin because we haven't gotten control of our thought life. In closing here, I just want to give you a couple of ways that will help you take your thoughts captive. Okay, it's five of them, but we're going to go real quick. How to take your thoughts captive, because taking your thoughts captive will unlock the transformative power of the gospel in your life. In those areas that you're going, I'm just not getting any better, it's your thought life. You, you win the battle in your mind, and your behavior will follow. First of all, think about what you think about. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, we waited 35 minutes to get to that. No, think about what, no, it's true. Think, most of you don't do this. Think about, at the end of the day, take inventory. What have I thought about? About a year ago, before we started meeting on Zoom, we, uh, Kelsey and I had gone to Colorado, and uh, we'd gone through some difficult times. It was on my mind, and we drove back overnight. All the kids fell asleep, and I just drove. And when I pulled into Kansas City, I realized I had thought about that situation for eight hours. I was so mad. I'm like, I want my eight hours back. Like, I, I could not believe I had spent eight hours turning a situation over in my head that I could do nothing about. Think about what you think about. When you get to the end of the day, go, what took most of my own mental energy and did it matter? When it comes up again, you'll go, I don't want to spend that time wasted that way. Think about what you think about. Number two, develop a pattern of avoidance. There are thoughts related to anxiety that are big picture, but there are also thoughts that are very uh, related to specific things you are exposed to. Okay, Certain people certain situations, things that you can avoid. If you can avoid those things that capture your mind, avoid them. When we were youth pastoring, we used to tell kids, write down the two places, physical places, where you're sinning the most. They'd write them down, and we'd say, okay, don't go there. And they were like, that actually works. If you can acknowledge the places where you struggle, and, and avoid those areas, actually literally avoid them, you can help get control of your mind. Think about what you think about, develop a pattern of avoidance, and then test your thoughts when you have them. You will have a series of thoughts, sometimes even full-on conversations with people, that you feel good about in the moment, and then later you go, I wish I wouldn't have thought that, and I wish I wouldn't have said it. And I even felt good when I said it. But now that it's behind me, I don't feel so good about it anymore. Some of you have had bumps in life and you feel compelled to tell that story to somebody. 
And you tell it over and over and over again. To no avail, they can't do anything. You just want them to know the story. Test those things. Say, is this helping me? Is this contributing to the renewing of my mind? Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That is your template. You get to the end of the day, you think about what you've thought about, look at that list and go, how much of what I thought about? What about the stories that I told? Did it line up with that list? If it didn't line up with that list, did I need to tell that story? Did I really need to tell that story? My mind is never going to be renewed if I don't let go of the story. I got to move on. Number four, fill the void you just created. Because if you've done these first three things, you've got a massive gap of time where your mind doesn't know what to do now. Okay, you just did delete on all the stuff that's been holding you back. Like, where did my mind go? Fill that void with worship and with scripture. Okay, somebody I was talking to, somebody just the other day that said uh, their dad came to life, or came to Christ kind of late in life and went everywhere in life with a uh, stack of index cards with scriptures he had written on a, on a binder ring and he would sit anywhere he had a minute or two down, he would just flip through these cards. And they said, Dad, why do you do that? Is it making up for lost time? I didn't know all this. I got to get this in me. You know what? I promise you, while he's standing in line to get into a store and he's flipping through these cards, his mind is focused on, I mean, he's being transformed. He's a new man because he has filled the gap with scripture and with worship, with music. Finally, frame the battle for your thought life as obedience or disobedience. This isn't just something you want to get better at. Some of you are going, yeah, I wish my thought life was a little better. No, no, don't. If, if you can think of it as, as a little better or not a little better, that's a sliding scale and, and you'll make excuses. Think of it as I, I was obedient or I was disobedient. Get to the end of the day and ask yourself, was I obedient in my thought life to the Lord? And be honest. Maybe tell your spouse, maybe tell somebody, don't everybody call, tell me, okay? But you ask yourself, was I obedient or not? Because making that black and white choice of was obedient or not obedient will make it easier tomorrow. Because if I was disobedient, I don't want to do that again. But if I was obedient, oh, it feels good. I walked in the light today. I'm being transformed. He's making me new. Guys, I really believe everything the Bible says about the ability to transform our lives and make us different, not just sustain us until he comes to take us out of this world. No, to make us different people than we were. But the only way that he has permission to transform us is if we are not conformed. And it's most of our confirmation takes place in our thought life.